0: I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise. When drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter. When stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am The Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. In the first episode, an after-party hang with Courtney Love goes south, I turn Winona Ryder onto indie rock. And introduce you to my uncle, Sergeant Pepper. Every story has to start somewhere. Mine starts with a tight close up behind the ear of Courtney Love. Everyone's got a good Courtney story. I mean, that's, you know, part of my whole thing, right? Exactly. I had first noticed this clear spot band aid that's what they call those little round ones made expressly for zits at the after party while waiting to use the facilities. I empathized, having utilized them before. Sensing my presence, Courtney glanced behind her, saw that I was nobody, and turned back around. A minute later, the bathroom door opened and out popped a bald, weirdly beautiful somebody, Billy Corgan, before a few extra pounds dulled the glam part of the Glam Uncle Fester equation. Their handshake produced a lightly perceptible sound of crinkling cellophane. The after-party for the 1997 MTV Video Awards took place in the Ty Warner penthouse suite of the Four Seasons, the priciest hotel room in America. Perched 700 feet above the city, with floor-to-ceiling windows and a 360-degree view, the palatial digs were oversaturated with famous rockers, actors, and industry people. In one of the suite's nine rooms, Leonardo DiCaprio lounged on a king-size bed, with as many lady friends as its frame could accommodate. His pal David Blaine was nearby, pulling cards from places cards aren't supposed to be. In another room, the Counting Crows guy, or someone who looked an awful lot like him, held court. I don't know. It might have been Quai. And in the main room, my cousin, Noni, Winona Ryder, whose star my one was plus two, was talking intensely with a rapt Dave Grohl. Around here's where Courtney Love's Friend's Friend who has an extra hit of ecstasy came into view, and Noni and Dave and Dave's mom slipped out, accompanied by assorted entourage members. To find myself hours later trailing along with Courtney and her posse, which included her boyfriend, the actor Edward Norton, in Merciless Morning Light was an ignominious end for an evening that had seen me waltzing ecstatically to Bittersweet Symphony by the Verve. I even caught a further glimpse of Courtney's band aid in the limo when she leaned toward her friend, who was some kind of a model, and whispered, Got any coke? Pushing tepidly through the revolving portals of a luxury hotel located somewhere between Midtown and Chelsea, I sensed I wasn't the only one on the wrong side of a pill. The prevailing mood was that awful, squinchy, come down feeling. We followed Courtney into and out of an elevator, and when she stopped at a room at the end of a corridor and rapped on the door, we all lurched to a collective halt behind her. After an extremely long minute or so, the door opened, and, as another David, David Byrne, had prophesied, I did have to ask myself... The moment is at least partly traceable to a rare April snowstorm that occurred fifteen years earlier, one that closed down the schools in New York's tri-state area for days and forced our visiting relatives from the west, Mike and Cindy and their kids, Winona, ten, the very same Winona who would years later keep Dave Grohl in thrall, and Yuri, six, to extend their visit for several days. Much to the chagrin of my mother. Who had played the good host for almost a week and, quite honestly, was ready to see the backs of them. I couldn't believe my luck. My little sister was on an extended sleepover engagement with her own coterie of pals. My brother was off at Sarah Lawrence, having reluctantly agreed to attend the country's most expensive private college, while continuing to play bass in a new wave band called The Method. So I had the Harwoods clan all to myself. Uncle Mike's family was laid back and loving in a way that we just were not, and having them around made normal life better. One night, as we all nestled Simpsons-like on the basement sofa for SNL, Noni at one end, her feet in Cindy's massaging hands, I thought how absent this tactility was from my own nuclear family relations. We Clines weren't much for snuggling. I'd always loved the company of young kids, and I was studying psychology at Vassar and thinking a lot about childhood development. At ten and a half, Noni had prodigious levels of charm and sophistication. Like me, she was mad about Monty Python and had the dry, absurdist wit and love of wordplay that went with it. We would listen over and over to my Monty Python tape, especially a bit called A Minute Past. No wind stirred the casement window as she stood in the pale, translucent light on the Persian carpet. A minute passed, then another, then another minute, then another minute passed, then another minute passed, and another. A further minute passed quickly, followed by another minute, when suddenly a different minute passed, followed by another different minute, and another. On the eve of the Horowitz clan's departure, the radio could not have been clearer about predicting a major snowstorm, but Mom refused to believe it partly because it was April already, mild and sunny to boot, and partly because she just didn't want to believe it. And yet, the following morning, there it blindingly was. Sheer whiteness everywhere you looked. Uncle Mike, who had studied meteorology before earning a master's in English and American Lit from NYU, was in heaven. A dedicated snow lover, he hadn't seen this stuff in fifteen years and couldn't wait to get out in it. Neither could the kids, who, having spent most of their lives on a commune called Rainbow in Elk, California, Pop 208, had only observed the snow phenomenon in views of Miracle on 34th Street in Rainbow's converted barn-cum-movie house. Rainbow meant living with six other families, according to an aesthetic that was half-hippie rejection of middle-class values and conformity, half-futuristic experimental community. We consider it to be a space colony, Uncle Mike wrote at the time, a self-contained, self-selected small community that could exist at L5 or somewhere like that. The arrangement lasted a few years, until the tribal leaders began advocating polyamory. As Mike rummaged through the garage and retrieved a couple of neglected snow saucers, Cindy and I bundled up the kids in what we could find that fit them, and off we trudged to Capitani's, a house on a hill. It was a perfect sized hill for novices and gangly snow enthusiasts alike. Mom stayed home and fretted. By day two of the layover, Noni had had her fill of sledding. She was clearly an indoor type, happier to rewatch her VHS copy of West Side Story or rummage through the old copies of Ramparts magazine that Mike, that's what she called her dad, Mike, kept stashed in the attic, than to romp in the snow. So we headed to my room for more Monty Python, and eventually she started sifting through my cassettes. My tape collection was my most valued personal possession. I had them numbered and maintained a master list in a hardbound, blank-paged book. Some were recordings of vinyl albums, minus songs I didn't like or didn't have room for. I would go back and record over entire sections I no longer dug. I viewed them as works in progress. My most treasured mixes consisted of songs culled from the airwaves. They might lack first verses or end with a segue into another track or DJ talk, but that was okay. I gave them fanciful names like Scattered Showers and Assorted Poodles and spent inordinate hours illustrating the narrow rectangular panel on the paper insert that lined up with the tape's spine. Let's try Peppermint Lumps, Noni said. My Pulls out of bed, splashes his face, scratches his head. He runs down the stairs to me and my sister in the kitchen with mom. Peppermint Lumps was a good place to jump in. The title came from a one-off single by Just Pete Townsend, spoke song by a little Stop British toast. kid named Angie. It was many of the things I loved. Catchy, childlike, strange and obscure. From there, an exuberant smorgasbord of sound. The English beats ecstatic cover of Tears of a Clown. Who does Lisa Life by sixteen year old Rachel Sweet? Like? WPIX FM, New York's Rock and Roll. Boys Don't Cry by the Cure. All snatched from radio ether for my edification and her enlightenment. Eventually, we got to assorted poodles, and scattered showers, and the DBs, and young marble giants and XTC. As a college sophomore, mixtape sequencing was the sole academic pursuit for which I'd shown much aptitude. The margins of my wire-bound college notebooks teemed with carefully inked verses from Elvis Costello songs, lysergic cubistic imagery, and pyramids, as opposed to, say, useful notes. I wasn't doing anything notable in the eyes of my professors, and among my peers I was at least known for my music collection. The sort of a guy with the wherewithal to break out Carl Denver's insane version of Weem Away at a debauched townhouse throwdown that ends with a toga-clad dude pissing on top a flaming mattress. I was known for my tapes. A college friend undergoing a bone marrow transplant awoke from the procedure and asked for his Walkman with a Kleiner mix, all queued up. The first time I made a tape, and I do mean tape, nobody called these things mix tapes until much later. I pressed the record button on my portable Panasonic unit, placed it between two cheap speakers, and tried to be as quiet as I could while Yes's Yesterdays played. My cassette game improved immeasurably once I got my first decent tape recorder. The ability to record off the radio changed everything. This must have been what young Brian Eno felt like when he got his hands on his first synthesizer. Sometimes I would just spin the dial and record snippets all mashed together, like this. Uh, they are dancing. The, uh, the men, are, are hand- holding hands. Also, all makes cars available for leasing. 53 in a performance isn't it nice to know there's a place that offers comfort after every green tree killing the little children at kenny's castaways has spoken it after high. yeah oh. 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 Call Swing is here. Clothes were half-toned off my back. And His face was like the moon. It is now day four of the extended blizzard encampment, and Mom is ready to start a small pillowcase fire just to get them out. Her brother's lackadaisical west coast departure nearly does her in. The car is packed, the suitcases stowed, The entire family has showered, and the car is in the driveway with the engine running. Mom is just about to let out a huge sigh of relief, perhaps even fix herself an early cocktail, when one of the car doors flops open and out pops little Yuri, who's forgotten his Dodgers cap. Mom locates the hat, guides him gently but firmly out the door, and is just about to praise God for his mercy when Uncle Mike reappears at the door. He has to pee. Mike pees, gives Mom a final hug that she practically shrinks from, and exits. They drive off. Finally. Seven minutes later, Mom is down in the basement, deep in the zen of folding Dad's socks, lulled by the sound of swishing bath towels when she hears the car pull back into the driveway. A beat later, the side door opens, followed by a light clambering footfall. Enter Noni, waif-like. And... action! Oh my gosh, Joan! I almost forgot West Side Story! Doe-Eyes wide, selling it. Noni retrieves the tape from the VCR, emits the cutest little whoo! and eye-roll you've ever seen, and scoots elfinly back up the stairs. Everybody was fair game in my home, and anybody could outstay their welcome. But I never doubted I was loved. Whenever I started choking on something at the table and Mom offered me her palm and said spit, I knew I was loved. When Dad would tuck me in for the night and say, goodnight, old Bean, before closing the door, I knew I was loved. Mom was four years older than Uncle Mike. They grew up digging the Brooklyn Dodgers, J.D. Salinger, sci-fi novels, New York radio, and sneaking out of the family apartment in Brooklyn's Crown Heights neighborhood for french fries after my grandmother's dependably bland meals. By 1965, they were both on societally-approved paths. Mom was married to a Jewish doctor, living in the suburbs and raising three kids. Michael, a voracious reader who loved the smell of old books, was working at his dream job in the books department of Park Bernay, the nation's premier auction house. But while Mom had her hands full, Mike was living free and easy in a $100 a month pad in the West Village and having a high old time of it. Through a convoluted series of events, he had managed to avoid some of his army duty. So as long as he kept his crew-cut military grade and showed up for bi-monthly troop meetings at a city battalion, he was at liberty to partake in the full swath of counterculturalism. On a typical weekend, he and his girlfriend Bev would meet up with their friends, John and Mike's future wife Cindy. They'd smoke some tea at one of their apartments and then catch a French or an Italian new wave flick or maybe a samurai movie or an old Batman and Robin serial at the New Yorker Theater on Upper Broadway at midnight. They represent American youth who love their country and are glad to fight for it. Wherever crime raises its ugly head to strike with the venom of a maddened rattlesnake, that man and robin strike also. And in this very hour when the Axis criminals are spreading their evil over the world, even within our own land, that man and robin stand ready to fight them to the death. There was a thriving asset culture, too, and tripping grew to be a common weekend occurrence. NYC and LSD made for a volatile mix. Police sirens, especially, were a massive bummer. Mike and Bev and their friends learned to venture outside only when coming down. In June 1965, they and several members of their cohort rented a farmhouse in New England and spent that steamy summer imprinting their minds with revelatory new wiring. John and Cindy soon relocated to San Francisco and began relaying tales of how you could take acid and walk out in the world and be met with warm vibes and knowing smiles. Every phone call or letter from the west coast added to the feeling of missing out on the California gold rush. As 1966 came to a close, Good Vibrations edged out Mellow Yellow at the number one spot on the Billboard chart, and Bev, who had no real job, flew west. Mike waited until Christmas vacation rolled around before making the same journey. Anxious for him to experience the San Francisco phenomenon in proper fashion, his friends welcomed him with a much stronger dose than he'd ever had, powerful enough to conjure Frank Zappa's "Susie Cream Cheese forth from the stereo embroidered by a choir of Zen monks. it felt right, they walked to Golden Gate Park, their feet barely touching the ground, and yes, it was true. Everyone they saw was in that same blessed state. Weeks after that peek through the doors of perception, Uncle Mike stood in the frigid vestibule of his apartment, gazing at issue four of the San Francisco Oracle. On the cover of the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood's psychedelic newspaper was a bearded, third-eye-emblazoned shaman in magenta and black tones, framed in spidery script that announced, A Gathering of the Tribes for a Human Being. This now-iconic happening had already happened, three weeks ago, and John and Cindy had been there. Though he wasn't really quite ready to start packing, the notion that his life path led westward began to assert itself, and a knowing smile crept across his face. In June, he and Bev took off in a 1954 Oldsmobile Super 88 that belonged to my grandparents. Five days later, they crossed the Bay Bridge going west at sunset. They made their way to John and Cindy's place in the neighborhood known as Japantown, where they found a handwritten note taped to the door announcing that their friends were in jail in Napa. Fortunately, other friends, Staten Island friends, had a pad on Haight and Ashbury. he and Bev settled in, Uncle Mike sent me a postcard. Dear David, do you still like Indians? There are some on the other side of this card. Indians are very popular out here. Last week, a whole bunch called North American Indian Unity Caravan came to town and met with the hippies who dressed like them and wear feathers and beads. Some of my best friends live in teepees. Love, Sergeant Pepper. Postmarked October 1967, and ostensibly an announcement for three shows by Quicksilver Messenger Service at the Avalon Ballroom, the postcard pictured a goddess on horseback rendered in psychedelic American flag colors of silver, blue, and red. The buzz I caught off it went way beyond the hypnotic visuals. Here was a voice addressing me, a five-year-old kid, in the language of the times. I was no mere little brother or child in his eyes. I was a receptive young soul with a brain and a heart. And hippies were everywhere you looked. In the news, in laugh-in sketches. Do you know, the hippies are still demanding free expression, sexual liberalization, and legalized drugs. But the only thing they're not demanding is jobs. <laughs> having a certifiable hippie uncle was almost like having a celebrity in the family. Inspired, I grabbed a few of Dad's freebie notepads from a pharmaceutical company hawking a new antibiotic called Keflin, potent enough for the most severe infections, yet exceptionally well-tolerated. Use only as directed. I made pencil drawings of bell-bottom-clad hippies wearing fringed vests with no shirt underneath and a dangling peace sign. They weren't just acid freaks, though. They were freaks of nature, with different-sized arms and legs that went straight into torsos. Abetted by sunglasses and scars, my male hippies were passable. But the women, smiling, bouffant-cropped, come-hither types, presented a much greater challenge. Mine were rendered an extreme one-eyed profile, breasts cantilevered at angles aboard by nature. Undeterred by my tenuous grasp of human anatomy, I persisted, stoked by mind-blowing comics sent by Uncle Mike that introduced me to Fritz the Cat, the fabulous furry Freak Brothers, and other rebels who spoke up to the man and dispatched uptight squares with deadpan wit and cool. Despite being extremely left-wing, Mom was no hippie, or even much of a hippie sympathizer. One time Uncle Mike tried to share the wonders of a good reefer with Big Sis. They smoked a joint and listened to Let It Be, as you do. And lo and behold, when Dig A Pony came on, a song Mom knew inside out, this time it was like, wow man. Like Suddenly she hears this astonishing beauty she'd never picked up on before. But when Mom comes down, she feels hoodwinked. Bamboozled, maybe? cheated by the evil weed. Falling in love with I Dig a Pony, which really isn't a great Beatles song by any stretch, was proof positive that pot messed with your critical faculties and mom liked to keep hers numbered in case of an emergency. That's not to say she was square or conventional. I would say mom was practical. As a student at Brooklyn College where so many of her female friends were working on an education degree, she shuddered at the thought of life as a teacher, facing an endless stream of unruly kids year in and year out. That was her idea of a nightmare. As a female English major, Mom stood out, and she parlayed her degree into a reporter job at the American Weekly, a Sunday supplement published by the Hearst Company. That's where she was in spring of 1959 when she met Dad, who, as fate would have it, was about to become Jimi Hendrix's personal physician. But that's a story for next time. check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of all the songs used in this episode and more. And if you liked what you heard, please do subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend.